Welcome back to another fantastic year here at Furry Dashi Podcast with Lauren and Nicholas. I am having a really hard time introing these because, well, you know, it's been a whole year, everyone. Uh, no, but it's definitely that get back to work kind of vibe from the holiday break. Yeah. So, Nicholas, how was your holiday break? Um, it was pretty good. You know, did ordinary family stuff, um, managed to dodge the big COVID bullet, even though it's currently um, getting scary out there again. Uh, let's see. What else did I do? Oh my God, I didn't really do a whole lot. I played a lot of games. No, actually, I played a couple of games that I've played many, many hours of, and they're sort of like my comfort go-tos. Um, but I also read a lot over the break because so like I listened to two full audiobooks as a result of driving a lot. Um, and I also managed to <laughs> so like I casually picked up uh, Ursula Le Guin's Tehanu one day just to sort of like check something to see if I that's remember a, that's correctly. a casual read. Very and then I just casual. read it. <laughs> and then I just and then I just read it because it was like but and this is a book I've read um, a billion times probably. And I may even talk about later in this very episode. Future Nicholas here. Uh, spoiler alert. I did not talk about it. <laughs> Apologies for that. All right. Back to the show. So that's like that's our foreshadowing for you there. Um, yeah. My break was also pretty uh, filled with just lots of new things, new family, new recipes. I ended up learning how to make roast pork and like what could be described as a lovely baby child of an Instapot <laughs> and a pressure cooker. <laughs> Or yeah, we're not really cooker. sure what it was. <laughs> I'm not sure what it was. I was staying in an Airbnb, um, but a lot of things in my life, I just kind of like kept rolling with the punches. And I did restart my Animal Crossing Island. Oh, yeah. About... Colleen did that too. Sorry. Uh, my, that's my wife, Colleen, by the way. Uh, for those of you who don't know. Yeah, Colleen did that as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I think that like, just like uh, everyone else out there, we wanted to kind of start our 2024 episode with just what really matters in life, which is not just about, you know, studying games and doing really hard all the time and hustling about this research, but also, right, like your family lives and what you're doing outside of work. And so that yeah. is your first intro reminder to make sure that as excited as you are to listen to us and start of learn is like take a step back and reflect about why you're doing it um, yeah. and why you are actually that reflection, right, of why you actually want to do this. And it's that type of reflection and subjectivity um, super awesome segue here that we wanted to share with you in this episode. Uh, from December, we talked a lot about not only Nicholas's game, uh, La Concorde de Fille, uh, but also which, will like, be, which is going to be renamed Sympathetic Memories. I just haven't gotten around to it. Which will be, yep. And as soon as he gets around to it, then we can start doing that. But until then, everybody who speaks French out there, you can spell it. For everyone else, we're sorry. Um, yeah. But we wanted to talk about his game themes and his game pillars as defiance memories and that interpretation. But we kind of came out with that is that we wanted to talk about subjectivity, yeah. right? 
and talk about the first person perspective. And so I think what's really interesting to me here, Nicholas, is that you talk a lot about how you couldn't have made this game without you know, living the life that you've lived. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting parallels when we talk about the lives that we bring to our work, as well as then you put that work into the quite literally first person experience of the game. And so for those of us who want to a nice recap here, the first person perspective is something that when you look at games is say like a first person shooter, right? It's first person, you don't see your avatar on screen, right? But the first person perspective comes from books, everyone. Um, And the first person is about the I form. So I did this, I did that, right? Different than the second person, which is you did this, like when you walked through the door, it's like, oh my gosh, you're talking about me, the reader, right? Or whoever you're supposed to stand for. And third person, right, is obviously, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Um, that's the first thing that came to my mind it is accurate it's just funny (laughs) it is it is accurate so that's the third person so i just wanted to use that uh, terminology here and get us started with and uh, just kind of talk about nicholas how do you want to go about kind of introducing what first person right meant to you and why that was so important to use this in your game um for a bunch of reasons one there is so for those of you who don't recall um i in a not so distant former life was a working academic um i primarily taught uh japanese culture and literature and some history and film in there as well and one of the things that i often taught in this capacity was like the various stages slash varieties of Japanese Buddhism. And so like in my intro classes, I would usually focus like initially on Tendai, which was one of the earliest iterations of Buddhism to enter Japan, um, then kind of move to uh, Pure Land Buddhism, which is kind of what characterized the early, early medieval period. Um, and then into Zen Buddhism, which is probably what most people know as Japanese Buddhism, although it is actually pretty niche in Japan. Pure Land is still the largest like Buddhist stream. But one of the sort of principal concepts of Buddhism, and especially the one that like all streams of Japanese Buddhism really latch onto, is this concept of non-dualism. What does that mean? So non-dualism is the kind of collapsing of what could be sort of like subjective and objective observation into one unified whole. And the reason why this is important for me is because, you know, when you think about first person perspective, that's usually sort of purely the like uh, the, you know, the subjective side. When we think of first person narratives, we usually think of like reality being filtered through either through one individual's perceptions. But the thing is, when it comes to artistic formations, there are a lot of there's a lot more variety than just that. So, like, for example, uh, one of the most common attributes of, say, like Jane Austen's novels is this idea of what's called close third person or um, what is it called? Free indirect discourse is what it's sometimes called. (laughs) Uh, And so and the point of this is that, like, the third person narration in the text often kind of moves in and out of particular characters' consciousness. In other words, it presents, as a third-person narrative, something that we would normally attribute to first-person narration. And so in many ways, this is kind of like 
emblematic of what Buddhists writ large, you know, think of as that collapse. There is a non-distinction between those two. The distinction arises out of sort of this arbitrary thing that we do when we separate things out into being sort of like subjective and objective. But there are plenty of ways of thinking of them as sort of like a kind of dialectical pair, sort of like constantly in tension with, with each other in one sort of like unified whole. And so especially in in games in particular, one of the things that I have noticed is this tension between first person narration and second person narration. And so that is sort of like the dichotomy that my game is working with. And the reason why this is kind of important is because like if you think to a very recent game like Baldur's Gate 3 or even like some of the oldest games like old text-based adventures, they often address the player directly in this you way. And it's kind of important to also be clear what kind of you this is, because one of the problems with sort of like the historical development of the English language is that there used to be a distinction between a second person singular, which was considered to be sort of more intimate, more direct, more personal, and a, a second person plural, which is more indirect, more impersonal, and so forth and so forth. But over time in English, these two things got collapsed into each other. However, there is a way to sort of recognize when you're t you're talking about one versus the other so for like example like if you're watching a television show like i say a, a cooking show and someone says you know first you dice this you know then then you add then you do this then you do this they're not addressing you directly and intimately they're addressing you in this generic manner but there is a way in which games actually very heavily rely upon that first one. Because if you think about sort of like the way Amelia, so Amelia Tyler is the voice actor who does the, the narrator for Baldur's Gate 3, the way her voice kind of really gets into your head, she's not just narrating to a generic you, she is narrating to a very specific you. She is addressing you directly in this very intimate way. And that is the kind of you that I wanted to focus on. And I actually also kind of want to pick this apart because something that immediately kind of comes to mind when you talked about the cooking show is that in some of my previous work, I was very, very adamant that we would never use you in our tutorial language. Yeah. Um, that is something that I'm still very passionate about. And then to this day, I think maybe my jadedness has made me less passionate, but I never want to say you need to uh, cross like because, you know, Laura can grapple. You can yeah. grapple, so you grapple. And that actually was something that I felt that we actually really like talked about and kind of settled on as a language to never say you need to use your ice pick to do walls, right? Yeah. It was all about like this person you are inhabiting can do this. This person that you are inhabiting can do it. And so what's interesting is that I wonder by pulling back on some of that tutorial language, you're also talking about this more personal you. I think it's worth mentioning like the impersonal you that you found in games, because I feel like yeah. it's very easy to kind of just throw yourself into that. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, games do tend to have to use that you voice in an impersonal way. And tutorials are a really good example of this. But even if you think, and this is going to sound kind of bonkers, but I think it's true. Even if you think of like the basic structure of objectives, like objectives are usually like when they're written on the screen and you see them pop up on one side or at the top or wherever, they're written as commands. But these commands have, a, have I mean, a command is literally a second person construction. But it's done in a very like distant, dissociative way. It's not saying like, 
hey man, could you go get me five bear butts? It's like acquire five bear butts. Like both of those are sort of a <laughs> or well, like what if bear like what if bear butts were a drug and it's like, oh man, I need to get a fix, man. I need those five bear butts. Like that's more directly addressing you, the player, versus sort of like an objective system, which has this kind of like vague, generic unison. Okay. But I do want to talk about this because I think it's actually incredibly important. And what we can yeah. look at is like objectives for more of like let's say shooters versus objectives for even I'm going to use shooters as the genre here for objectives for call of duty or team fortress two versus objectives for cyberpunk 2077. I think what's really fantastic here and what people I think need to appreciate is the, a large reason, uh, not only in that it's easier to reuse your objectives, if they are go plant the bomb, go rescue the target, go scale, like scale the building is even like slowly starting to go into the spectrum of now it's too specific, go to the location, find the rescue survivor, right? Yeah. All of those are really like vague intentionally, really to kind of cut down on word cost and actually increase the developers, like the actual developers themselves iteration time. I think on the flip side though, when I looked at Cyberpunk 2077, every single script and quest has its own unique objectives that are actually more personal now so instead of saying like go figure out um i think gta actually does this a good example as well and so if you're using the bare butts example right and (laughs) right no i think and which also fits into cyber okay drugs drugs is another good example go get some right yeah like hey like go find the drugs like go bust the drug cartel right yeah but it could also be like hey like shut felipe's lights off Oh, like I know from dialogue that I'm busting the drug cartel because I'm this cop or like, you know, I'm in 2077 and I need to go, you know, bust his lights. But like that tells me nothing without the context. If I load up the game again, I have no idea what that is. I just know that I should do it. And so what's interesting where I think a lot of the discourse happens about we should use these more literal objectives is that they are better in some cases for cognitive accessibility and replayability. When you put the game down and you get back and it says bust the drug cartel, you know exactly what you need to be doing. But it is at the expense of immersion and maybe role play, right? I, oh, I am busting Felipe's lights. Sorry, I like started like laughing at myself. (laughs) And I think that in both of those cases, there is still a command. And it's very important. It's an English major in me to point out that Nicholas is 100% on the money. Both of them say, you go bust the lights out, right? Yeah. You go. And if you are bilingual or you study other languages, the command form is usually, uh, at least in romance languages, adhered to that formal you go do this thing and while it is impersonal we can see through the writing quality how now and now we're getting into the fun part which is dialogue which is a lot of right this text-based approach that nicholas is taking that the writing quality and how you say that command actually can make it hey i need you like go take out the trash right you could say that to your partner go take out the trash i don't know you say as you know, Maria Hill, and you're talking about some like AIM robots, right? Either way, it's both of them are personal, but one of them is personal to you, the player, and one of them could be personal to the character, right? And so I think Amelia Tyler's voice gets into your head because she's a fantastic voice actress. But the writing and the quality of the dialogue is not about 
you, the player, it's you, the player role playing the character that did or did not make that choice. And so I think that role play aspect here is just something I wanted to kind of address and call out to kind of show that, like we always do here, spectrum of uh, what could be more impersonal, vague, objective, and direct, right? But not quite, right? Role play, immersive little bit more indirect but is much more specific exactly i i i want to say i want to yes and something though so when you when you referred back to sort of like the the baldur's gate example i think another component of it is also the degree of specificity because when the narrator comes so like oftentimes what will happen is you make a particular choice like you know i i choose to i don't know like save Minthara because she is Bay and kill all the druids in a ruthless massacre. <laughs> like when you do that, then her voice intervenes, not just to sort of give you a generic overview of things that are happening, but specifically how events now reflect what you have just done. In other words, she's not just like talking to you, but she's also talking about you within an immediate context. And so like when you look at objective systems in games, they are they have an almost kind of objective quality, literally because they are objectives. <laughs> they have an objective quality to them precisely because it they're, they're not really, there's no relationship to sort of like the specific actions that you have taken. They're not responding necessarily to what you have done. They're, they're going to be like that regardless of you know how things transgress it's like you hit a particular progression point new objective appears you hit a particular progression point new objective new objective appears so that aspect of sort of like using the the form of address the second person form of address to not just like describe what's happening but to sort of like bring you into what's happening and that's really important, not just for role playing, but also especially for like story rich games. And as Lauren mentioned, for immersion as well, because the thing is, is the story is very much something that is building up itself around the player. Now, in a game which is sort of relatively story anemic, if you will, or sort of not as story rich, that's not as important. And so like the the way in which the game addresses you can be much more of that kind of objective aloof style but when the game is being literally built around your actions then it almost kind of compels i don't know if it compels but it's much easier to sort of construct that form of address of the player in this much more intimate way and i think that that kind of brings us to story rich gaming versus non-story rich gaming what i want to kind of highlight here is that it doesn't have anything to do with the type of game you're making. No. I know in this podcast, we really are going into kind of our specialties here, not just research, academia, and our lives, but also write storytelling, writing, right? Yeah. And, you know, 2D interfacing, things that we are really good at creating. But I, what I want to bring out and kind of yes and here is that the amount of responsiveness, right, that your game needs dictates how specific that writing and that quality needs to be. Yeah. And story rich does not necessarily mean narrative or story driven my yeah. biggest example for this is always vampire the masquerade blood hunt vampire the masquerade is a uh, tabletop role-playing game with rich lore set in the beautiful city of san francisco but is actually always set in seattle for some reason um but the creators are from san francisco so there's a lot of anyway i love it let's move on um i bring up blood hunt it is a battle royale game in which story really doesn't mean anything but if you are playing a Vampire the Masquerade game, there are certain elements of the lore. There is a rich well to draw from. 
Yeah. And while I fell off of this game, you know, quite frankly, because I do really love really rich, increasing right ex- uh, experiences, or right, I actually am really loving Animal Crossing, which you could also say isn't story rich, but actually has a lot of embedded kind of rules story and is responsive and driven by what the player has done. So yeah. every time you win a match in Blood Hunt, you have a lot of wealth of lore coming back to you and a lot of role playing for getting into that class and character. Maybe yeah. not as much as you would in a traditional RPG, right? Which is more relevantly story rich, but there is a lot of story in the Vampire Masquerade universe. Yeah. Additionally, there's actually a lot of like deep lore in Animal Crossing, even if it's just about, you know, Tom Nook's, right, billionaire empire and yeah. him being a loan shark. I think that at the end of the day, like that is headcanoned out, right, and responsive to the game mechanic and system of every time you need to, like in the real world, uh, upgrade your house or <laughs> get education, you take out a loan, right? It's all yeah. about that capitalist structure. And yeah. so it's kind of really important to recognize that it's not just about the stories that say maybe the games themselves are telling. There's the yeah. stories that the players are telling within those game experiences that are really, really important. Now, actually, yeah. I know you want to follow up on this, but yeah, then I actually fine. did have a question for you. So follow okay, up, go Nicholas. Ahead. No, go ahead. No, are you? No, question. Question away. My question big me. question was about getting into more of that personal you with your narrator. Yeah. So. So because I, I think what's really interesting too, um, and everyone, if this is, this is a moment of transition here. So if you need to like pause and reflect on what we've said (laughs) yeah go make Um, a cup of coffee or some tea get a donut or you know just sit back relax sit back we're 20 minutes in and we'll we're switching to a different topic that actually is directly related and we're going to talk about the narrator the personal you and the reliability or unreliability of this narrator so stay tuned after this not really existing advertisement break uh and then we'll we'll be back (laughs) All right, now oh, that we're back from break. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so so just like off off the top, very briefly, I do want to point out that like all of that academic stuff is for me very personal because it's very much tied to like I I've always taken like my teaching very very personally. I'm not one of those people who can just kind of part- compartmentalize. So there is that aspect. But when it comes to sort of like the actual mechanics of okay, so let's remind everyone of how this works so the narrative voice that is addressing you slash ohatsu in this second person mode is actually a character in the game not only is it a character in the game but it is a character who is directly sharing these memories with you through this form called sympathetic memories that i sort of show slash explain in one of the the early encounters in the game And so that's what's happening. You have this other person who's literally in your head. And essentially what they're doing is observing your memories as you recall them. And that has a kind of pragmatic function in that, like, so like if you're in a particular encounter scenario and you make a choice, then that voice is literally going to explain what happens, not necessarily because it's like, a generic narrator, like omniscient narrator floating in the ether, but they're literally describing to you what they see happen. And then you responding back and so forth and so forth. So that's sort of like the, the emphasis on having the sort of that, that intimate you as opposed to the like, you know, generic, you know, now you do this, now you do that, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm really curious 
Before we go into the reliability and unreliability, I'm actually really curious if you could just rephrase that as to why you really wanted that character in the game actually to witness and experiencing what they see happen yeah. in, regard, in regards to the choices or those actions the players take. And maybe that's where you were going with this, but just in case I wanted to state out that question. No, no, it's, it's an important reminder. Uh, I was kind of getting there a little too slowly. Um, the point is, is that in many ways, that, so that, like the the dichotomy, or you know, to use my terminology, the dialectic between these two characters, both between your avatar and this other like slash narrative voice that's in your head, um, they're actually both me. And the reason why I say this is because so in the previous episode, I brought up this other game that I had made recently called Snow, which is a card sort of like card based uh, narrative game, because. Um, so going back to something I mentioned earlier, this this question of non-dualism, the thing is, is that, you know, when you're in a state in your life, when you're trying to sort of like, you know, things have gone pear-shaped, you're trying to re-examine what's happening, you kind of both have to try and look at it objectively from like an outside perspective at the same time as you sort of recall what happened subjectively. And you need that perspective because if like the the errors you made or sort of like the misunderstandings that resulted were primarily because at the time you only saw things subjectively, then you need that sort of that extra perspective, that sort of like dissociated perspective to kind of look at it in a way that you know you're not normally used to in your day-to-day -day life. So in many ways, this push and pull between, and it's a very real push and pull because I've talked previously about the defiance mechanic, how this other character will eventually just like write you off and let you die <laughs> if, if they get you know too irritated with your unwillingness to sort of participate in this process of like recalling these memories. And so like that push and pull is very much reflective of kind of the situation I've found myself in in a lot of recent years where like, I mean, my career hasn't really fallen apart, but like once you get to become an older and older and older adjunct, like the jobs start to dry up or they become more difficult to hold on to, or you're getting older and your body is just kind of falling apart in all sorts of interesting ways, or you start to have medical conditions or you're dealing with mental health problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but to deal with sort of like the accumulation of all that, oftentimes you need to be able to dissociate from yourself a little bit in order to sort of like, not just have a different perspective on what's on what's happened because that's sort of like a platitude like oh it's important to have different perspectives but that different perspective is one that sort of like grounds a new understanding and so the thing is if this character ohatsu which you know whose actions you take up for yourself if she is recalling these events in her life in order to have a new kind of understanding of them for her as well as for you, the player, then you need that extra perspective. That is the thing that sort of like helps you revisit and reinterpret what's going on and not just seeing it in a different way, but also sort of like understanding the importance of seeing it in a different way. So mechanically in the game, this is representing what I think of as like a sort of combination of all the different ways in which I've thought about how you reflect on your own life. So I think one, I love this because it's something that honestly in starting this year and on uh, recording this so early as well that you're still within that first 10 days of the new year going like, what am I doing? And everyone's sharing the resolutions <laughs> and yeah. mine is just, I need to just, you know, learn more. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but really, like, it's all about that reflection, right? And actually, yeah. what I wanted to kind of point out here is when we started this episode and we wanted to talk about that personal you and the narrator, what I realized here is, you know, I kind of didn't realize this, but I think that you actually do have almost two kind of narrative voices interwoven between each other. Oh, yeah. And I know that you've hinted at that, but I'm really curious that which one do you feel is actually more reliable because Hatsu is revisiting her memories or reflecting on it. And you're actually asking her to dissociate with those memories, which is interesting and actually change her perspective to more of say the actual narrator's right character's perspective on those events because they're sharing these. And so I'm curious, was that intentional? And if, I mean, or, or am I just also realizing this as you're going, wait, maybe that was unintentional. Like, I don't know. I, for me, I, I playing it, I was just, you know, engaged, but, and I'm reading it and I was engaged, but now I'm going, wait a second. There are almost two narrative voices here. One that yeah. you, the player as a Hatsu are able to change, right? Yeah. Through your playthroughs. But then there is another more, like you had mentioned, disassociative or more objective, right? Narrator who is, mm -hmm seemingly more objective and so i think it'd be really interesting for us to look at that kind of both of them are in the first person right because they're both told yeah. the first person is actually the player well yeah not only that but also the second person particularly in this instance is kind of an adjunct or reflection of the first person perspective yeah they're not completely divorced from one another no exactly and so i know that this is an episode about the first person and so moving us into that i was just kind of like that's really interesting to me well, the thing is, is that I think actually asking about, you know, asking the question of reliability is is actually a bit of a misdirection because the thing is, and I really do believe this, both perspectives are true, 100% absolutely true. They're not misleading what they are, and this goes back to sort of this this problem of non-dualism, and also there's sort of like a, a psychoanalytic component to this as well, which is that you're only ever looking at a particular facet of a unified thing. A perspective is a perspective precisely because it's looking at something from a particular direction. And so, for example, you know, like right now I'm staring at, you know, my monitor, and I see one side of it. But I currently don't see the back of it. So if I change my perspective, if I go to the other side of it, I see a different, a complete, what seems to be a completely different, like visual thing, from you know, what I'm seeing right now. But as we know, it's the same object. I'm still looking at the same object, but I'm looking at it in a fundamentally different way. So then the question is: Was my perspective when I'm sitting in the chair here or standing behind my desk is one or the other more reliable? That's kind of an irrelevant question. I mean, I'm not trying to. No, it actually is an irrelevant question. And I think that's not exactly the answer that I, I thought you would just kind of come out and say, but it was something that I wanted to hit on. Because yeah. when we look at modern English literature teaching, or we look at, you know, book theory, a lot of it is, is your narrator reliable or unreliable, right? And I think what's yeah. interesting is this is very much a Western philosophy kind yeah. of approach, right? It's can you trust this person or can you not? And I just kind of love that because from the non from the non-dualism perspective, it's not about the trust of the narrator. It's about the acknowledgement that the narrator exists and provides, yeah. right, a good perspective. 
So I think you were kind of getting to that with dissociation, but I loved how you were just like, it's a misdirection. And I was like, don't call me out on my own podcast. <laughs> I wasn't trying to call you out, but I was trying to point to that, like, I think there is, the, I mean, in many ways, you sort of fell into the trap that we all fall into, which is to say, like, you know, the th- there is a way to understand something that is 100% complete and true. And then there are all these like partial lie, you know, like half lie, half truth, like perspectives on it. What, but like what I'm trying to say is that that 100% like complete objectively true view of things doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's not what objectivity is. First of all, I mean, as a sort of both like a scientific concept, but also sort of as a, like a larger philosophical concept, that's not what objectivity is. Objectivity is fundamentally like understanding something and seeing something as divorced from like the point at which it's being understood, be that like a particular an object like a camera or like a human mind or like any of the various ways in which things can be perceived. All that's all objectivity says is the thing being observed is aloof from the thing doing the observing. That's it. And Actually, interesting enough, scientists understand this better than anyone, especially like in quantum mechanics. They understand that this conception of how we see reality is fundamentally a problem because when you look at it on the quantum scale, that basic understanding of perception no longer works in like a hard scientific way. It just doesn't work. When you're observing electrons, you can't understand them in that way. It just you you won't get the right answer, so to speak. And a similar thing can be true of literature. It can be true. It can be true of the human psyche that I've said before, I think on the podcast that like when it comes, no, I haven't said this on the podcast. I've sort of, sort of like in private conversations with people is that like one of the important things about emotions, about feelings is that they're always true. You just don't necessarily know why they're true and sort of like the ability to kind of like dissect the truthiness to use a term of those feelings from these various angles like you're looking at an emotion but you're looking at it at very various angles and you realize that each point of understanding is giving you a piece and you're never going to have all of the pieces you're never going to have like this 100 complete understanding however you can kind of put those things together in a kind of assemblage that sort of lets you know that in fact contradiction is fundamental to human existence like a contradiction doesn't negate the validity of something and this is why i always tend to turn to like you know marxist analysis is because you know marx is very comfortable with this this idea that some something can embody its own contradictions and so when this other character in the game is viewing these events in a fundamentally different way and sort of like you make a choice as the player you know from like ohatsu's perspective then this other voice tells you the way they see the consequences of your decision. Like that is that sort of like in a microcosm. Both of those things are true. The, the, the choice you make is true. The reason why you made it is true. What the, the other voice in your head says about it is true. They're all true, even when they contradict each other. That's it. It's really simple as that. I mean, that's not simple. <laughs> like Philosophically, I realize. <laughs> I am... I always love when we get into the philosophical answers here because i think that's really missing from a lot of the heart of the game dev community in my opinion when we look at it can be these experience series and it can be it can be missing and that i already when i said that i was thinking of all of the games that either missed the target or hit the target really well or hit it in a way that was very like 
I do need to get better at my language with this, but I was going to say very sexy, right? <laughs> sexy's like, fine. Sexy's fine. Yeah. I hope sexy is fine. Because, we are a like, sex positive podcast. So yeah. All right. There we go. Everyone, you heard it here first. 2024, baby. Uh, no, but I mean, for me, it's very much like um, it's one of those things where like when you look at kind of delivering an experience that can hit that type of philosophical depth, like it has to come from the philosophical depth of the well of research. Right. Yeah. And so on the notion of that objectivity and subjectivity kind of background and foundation for everybody, I really want to kind of get into that first person use and how not just describing right that life yeah. and trying to just explain, hey, what you just explained right there as a philosophical argument, how are you using and weaving that philosophical argument into the first person kind of perspective Yeah. Um, in order to kind of like, you know, reiterate that kind of semi- perception i say semi-perception because i was going to say semi um i was going to say another word and i lost it so to rephrase the question or to just restate the question how did you weave that philosophical approach not just into the game design of those mechanics and the actions the players can take but also how did you weave that into writing that first person perspective coming from the players actions and players voices that made them feel like they were able to see and kind of reflect and look at all of those different perspectives through those dialogue choice options. From the writing perspective, um, so this is really where it kind of comes down to questions of characterization and the way in which characterization interacts with mechanics. Because when it comes to characterization, I really wanted Ohatsu to come off to the player as someone who is really, well, one, profoundly uncomfortable with what's happening, like kind of doesn't want to be doing this. And so then the way this works itself out mechanically is that sort of the, the very, very beginning of the game presents you with a fundamental choice. And it asks you, are you prepared to remember? And you can say no. And then you'll die. It's really that simple. The point is, and I wanted that to be available from the very beginning, not just because it's a gimmick. I mean, it is a bit of a gimmick. But it's also to say to, to the player that like, okay, this character that you're inhabiting, so to speak, like their perspective is one where this is a very real possibility where they just don't want to fucking do it. And so if that's an aspect of Ohatsu's personality, then I kind of have to offer that to the player. And then also throughout various encounters in the game or sort of like both dialogue choices, but then also sort of like the more like mathematically based encounters. Um, I try to, as often as possible, give Ohatsu and therefore the player the opportunity to express their sense of defiance. And then that has a very clear consequence in the game in that there is, its, there is a defiance variable that can increase and decrease based upon how often you do this. And so like persistently offering this option to the player and not just sort of like showing, and not just showing Ohatsu being snarky, although that's part of it, but then also offering these sort of like snark, snarky, I guess you could say uh, choices in the game you're both showing the player that that's what she's like, but then also saying, like, if you want to inhabit this character, maybe you also need to embody this personality that she has and the way she views things. And so that's very important. So that's where it kind of filters into the writing. It's because the writing is trying to show you that she's like this, but then it also factors into the writing for, like, the encounter design itself, because all of the encounter designs are narrative encounters. And so they have a very clear narrative cast. 
And so when you make a particular choice, that then means that the way in which the you voice reflects upon it also has to sort of be reacting to Ohatsu's sense of defiance or her like her acquiescence or whatever you ha- whatever choice you happen to be making for her at any given moment. And then you know, and then there's mechanical then there's systems that are built on top of that as well. All of which are meant to sort of reinforce what is that fundamentally fundamentally a, a question of characterization through storytelling. So I really want to ask like a follow-up question here for when you mentioned the fact that the player also has to role play and take in the character, the character herself is going to be a little bit snarky. I'm super curious that would you say that the kind of the strongest kind of like the theory you're testing, the hypothesis you're testing of the game that you're making is would you say that the kind of strongest games that rely on the first person perspective that also force the player themselves to take on that first person perspective kind of give a better kind of gameplay experience? I mean, certainly for me. I mean, I'm 100% willing to recognize that this is probably not a game for everybody. Um, and certainly when it comes to sort of like going through this, the story is rough. Like, war- warning, <laughs> uh, content warning in advance. Like, what happens to these characters is borderline traumatic, probably actually traumatic. And you as the player character will be dragged through a lot of that. Um, So just a warning. But the thing is, the reason why it's so important to have all of those, like everything pointing towards this particular like mode of characterization and of like role playing is because ultimately my goal is not necessarily is to induce a particular like affective, which is to say an emotional reaction. I want there to be a particular sort of experience of how you see things. So the thing is that like it's the game isn't just conveying information to you. It's not just saying like, you know, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's trying to get you to feel a particular way about it. And not only is it trying to get you to feel a way about it, in many cases, it's trying to get you to feel multiple conflicting things about it at the same time, where like you can both have a sense of antagon, like, you know, in an encounter that might be more um, antagonistic, you might feel a sense of like conflict and anger towards like, you know, this other character who's essentially assaulting you, but then something might happen and you also kind of sympathize with them and you grieve for them. This person that you hate, but you also grieve for, like, that's a very complex emotion and to sort of like get things, get the writing to be fine tuned so that the, both of those things can dwell together simultaneously. And that's ultimately the focus. And that's why sort of the role-playing aspect of it is so important. I think for me, the biggest kind of question that we could look at this, I think for our readers, our listeners, you read with your ears, everyone. Um, I, I mean, mean the now, game is a lot of reading. Let's be real. The game is a lot real. of reading. Yeah. yeah. Um, but our readers, our players, our listeners, I think would be really interesting is to kind of showcase a way a game does this that's maybe not in the first person. Yeah. Um, as you were talking, I was kind of imagining kind of two really clear experiences of world world games that I think do this really well. But yeah. because we are coming out to the end of time, I think that this means we will need to push what we were going to talk about uh, out another month um, so that we can instead talk about either one of these two experiences. And I'm yeah. coming up with this on the fly. So just for everyone who's listening, this is the first time you and Nicholas are hearing it at the same time ish. 
time perspective. <laughs> Weird. Um, but one of the things that Nicholas really kind of reached out to me when he was talking about how that role play aspect isn't for everyone, but how good writing and good storytelling can funnel people into an illicit emotional reaction yeah. was actually the original Halo trilogy. Um, oh, yeah, that 100%, is 100%, yeah. right? It's in the first person's perspective. And despite the game, say, not being for everyone, it was a very strongly driven narrative, right? And it gave that rich lore that they, you know, have been trying in, to milk for, right, ever since then. But what I think what's interesting is that another aspect, so that's a first person game. Yeah. The second game that is not a first person experience that I think actually does this really well in a lot of ways is Alan Wake 2. And that is which a I have not played, game, so, so which yeah. Nicholas has not played. But if we look at kind of forcing players into the role play aspect of a game that, quite frankly, also is very gamey, like there are lots of gamey mechanics at a certain point. Uh, some characters will be like, "Hey, I've got some more ammo, throw you," and they're literally throwing it from like a cliff because the NPCs have to be defaulted as why they're invulnerable, and yeah, yeah. you are in danger, right? <laughs> um, personally, I it was gamey. But at the same time, there's a lot of supernatural elements and a lot of elements that while playing both uh, characters, say I will say in that game for those who haven't played it, um, it's a very strong argument for how you can also do this role play aspect in a very more dramatic cinematic universe and in a very third person way. So yeah. I think that, that would be really interesting just to use two kind of modern to modern day wow halo <laughs> so modern i was about to um, say halo at this point is a pretty old game it is a pretty super old, old game. game and i keep yeah. having to remember that um but at least with alan wake 2 a very modern and game of yeah. the year according to the game awards uh so oh, man fantastic um like kind of experience for our players there and yeah. our readers so they could kind of see how maybe another game does it um, if not, we will then continue this whole series with not just the first person's perspective and subjectivity, but actually about the historical groundings and the historical inspiration uh, for why yeah. this story and where this story takes place yeah. and all about how we need to do the research when we're going to try to right, craft this type of deep of experience. Yeah. So, so with I that... Want yeah, yeah, I want to add one thing before we go, which is that um, so for the Patreon episodes, uh, we are starting a brand new Fudidachi Classroom series. So this is Classroom Series 3. Um, our previous series, Series 1, was on um, character and subjectivity. Uh, last year's series was on uh, storyboard analysis. And this time around, we're going to be going through basically like three chapters at a time of Jesse Shell's Art of Game Design. Um, and that's going to be on the Patreon feed. So if you want to like deep dive into sort of like some actual like game design text, <laughs> text in theory, um, that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, so you can go over to patreon.com forward slash Dashi. Just sign up for $5 a month and you'll gain access to that. And if you want to do the reading in advance, uh, the first episode will cover the first three chapters. Yeah, and with that, thank you guys for rounding out the first great start of an auspicious new year. It is also the year of the dragon. Uh, so I was going to say my favorite year, but <laughs> I am not born the dragon. in the year. Yes! <laughs> so everybody, ride the dragon out. Ride the dragon in. Uh, we're going to go in strong. So thank you guys for listening with us last year, and we look forward to the next one. Bye.